0: In terms of the, the startup life, I think we're Courtney and I were just talking about the the fact that for a lot of folks that work remote, not a lot has changed in terms of right. like, yeah, like we're, we're still remote. But uh, yeah, so, you know, since we're talking about startup life, um, tell us more about the stuff that you do. You are the CEO founder of uh, PMFit.ai. Tell us more what that is.
1: Yeah, so basically the idea is to grow product market fit with AI. And that's been a lot of products that we've tried, right? So in a way we've probably, I don't know what you call a pivot, but it's been very fluid for us. Uh, We've tried about five different products now and that we've had five different audiences, but we haven't felt like anything is successful enough to keep working on it yet and so we've slowly been refining that Uh, it's been it's been a very interesting journey working at Microsoft and you know Amazon before it's very
0: different so what led you to kickstart this project to begin with why what was the need for it yeah so
1: working at Microsoft I was very fortunate to have an amazing uh, management team. And what was really interesting there is there's this big transition going on of Microsoft Outlook going from being desktop software with traditional three- year cycles to being you know an evergreen release and being a sub- heavily subscription focused. So coming in, that, that history is so fascinating because I've never seen it and obviously it's been the way of life for so long working there and when you think about it you log down the product right you research for a year you do um development for a year you log down the product and do quality for a year so it's three years to get a product out the door and that makes sense because you need it to be really right right you can't make mistakes it's kind of like at the extreme of that is boeing making a plane you have right. to be, you have to eliminate the risk, right? And so if you're releasing a piece of software that you can't change for a long time, it needs to be spot on. And so going to the transition of now you're releasing all the time, right, which is super convenient for everybody involved, because there's no upgrades, there's no expensive IT departments. Of course, there's still IT departments, but much can be much smaller. So it's a win-win for both sides. But you can take advantage of that. The way I like to think about it is Uber, right? Uber is an app that took advantage of the fact that everyone has a phone, right? You couldn't really do that when people didn't all have a phone. And then once that was the status quo, then you could take advantage of that. So I love when there's a paradigm shift technologically that... There's first all the kind of obvious things that happen, but then begins the innovation around what can we now do that this thing is the status quo? So I think working at Microsoft, we saw a lot of that uh, change, and that change was very interesting. And working on it, we got to see, okay, with the resources of Microsoft, there's a lot you can do with a large data science team. There's really incredible ways you can work with teams and develop product. You can take advantage of the fact that it's continuous. There's a lot more data, you need to be a lot faster and you can't just stop at satisfaction anymore. You don't need to, right? Because you keep getting feedback that's continuous if you leverage it that way. And so working on Outlook, working on that transformation, getting to the point where you get to actually see exactly what personas do what tasks and you get to see, okay, how is this impacting the bigger picture? I think that was very fun and inspiring. And it's been part of a kind of like a 10 year journey for me, uh, being really obsessed with this idea just because I'm a big data nerd of like how can you learn so much about the psychology and the satisfaction of people using products? So that's kind of what inspired the idea and deciding to transition and think about, okay, but how can we take something that requires a large dedicated team and transform it into something that is driven by a small product? That's kind of what got it started.
2: Yeah. I mean, you're, I mean, you're really talking about anywhere from 20 to 50 data scientists, engineers, people like working really closely to understand the product, right? And how do you take that and uh, automate it really, or, or make it into an AI? Um, Yeah,
1: yeah. And it's like, definitely don't want to say it's automation, because it's augmenting, it's augmenting Mm -hmm. the flow, right? You still need the people. It's just All the people like designers, engineers, PMs don't have to do all the crappy stuff anymore, right? Where you're kind of a robot and you're collecting information and you're just trying to compile information you're trying to synthesize it. Instead, you can focus on here's all the information of what's truly happening at scale, right? You can see what millions of people are doing with just a summary. And then you can focus on all the creative parts of those roles that I think. That's what our mission is, is to kind of get that creativity being the main focus of everyone's job instead of it being just the simple kind of mundane parts.
2: Yeah. And I think that speaks to me as a designer because so much of my work is understanding like customer personas and understanding feedback. How do you take feedback and distill it into actionable, like insight, right? Mm -hmm. Like somebody tells you one thing, but that actually, that thing they tell you is not, maybe not what you're going to go build or it might not be translate exactly into a feature. Um, And like, how do you, there's a lot of like work that goes into just creating the, synthesizing the insights. And then there's a lot of work that goes into prioritizing a product backlog on that. And then actually, how do you take it one step farther and make it like a super pleasurable, like experience that somebody's gonna love? It's not just, you're not just surviving, like Outlook is gonna continue to provide email services, but like really make it something like uh, you know, like the classic examples, which is like inbox, right? Like people loved inbox, um, mm-hmm. that experience. Like, and that was spun off of like the the Gmail team. Like mm-hmm. they were doing their work, but then they kind of let these people go wild and be creative. So I, I definitely have that felt that there. pain where it's like, I don't want to do the monotonous stuff. I want to focus on making it amazing for you. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, there's no getting around to talking to people. Right. And which is fine. But. How do you make more out of talking to people, right? How do you know for sure that when you talk to somebody, okay, is this person representative of a set of 10,000 users in the product or are they representative of 5 million people, right? I think even for a small startup, you can't be there 24 seven, right? You can't be on the phone all the time with every customer so really the point where you can no longer keep up individually is around 30 people it's not that many like after 30 people you can't be there 24 7. i think that's that's our initial entry point where we're getting exciting um results It's basically even at 30 people if you could see everything that goes on and everything that is good or bad in their experience then you can start making decisions that are more informed than if you only have to sample right that's that's what we have to do today you kind of you know you talk to a few people you hope that they're you hope they're
2: representative of your wider audience and their pains
1: right right but it's like but what's stopping you from actually seeing who they are and what their behaviors are well that's where a lot of it and we had a challenging challenging time trying to do too much we actually um Interviewed and did sales demos with about a hundred two hundred people and then We initially people hated the thing we had right we had this simple clustering and I, I remember Getting on a call a demo call and just sitting there and starting the demo and they're like Oh, I just had something come up like, see you. And I was like, ah, right. You can definitely feel that's not product market. (laughs) (laughs) And then, you know, you go to, hmm okay, kind of like blank stares. And then we just kept iterating. Um, Our design is just incredible. And so we kept iterating and iterating on this. And we would tell people like, we haven't built anything yet. Right. We're just trying to figure out what will get excitement. I remember going from that, and getting to a point where the, we had a demo and you just, it's kind of a strange way to explain it, but basically I would present the demo and then I would like hear breathing, right? Like excited breathing. And I'd be like, whoa, what is that, <laughs> right? I remember thinking, and, and then I, I made a beginner sales mistake where I would just ramble for a while, right? And I would stop rambling after about five minutes and I would stop the screen share and they're just sitting there going like, yeah. And then bunch of questions, bunch of excitement. (laughs) It was so different than people trying to hop off the call with me, you know, just like weeks beforehand. So it was really interesting. And then realizing that that is not like that thing, unfortunately, turned out to be so incredibly hard. And it's what we were just talking about, trying to get personas and their tasks organized and summarized turns out there's a reason nothing does that yet it's because it's in, it's an incredibly difficult challenge so we had people and, pre-order. And, and
2: people like even it's hard for people to even do this i mean there's trained right. researchers that i've worked with that this is like their everyday job and it's hard even and it changes from project yep. to project even
1: exactly and so that's what happened to us we we ended up iterating iterating getting to something that's super exciting and being honest about it, saying like, hey, we haven't built this. Like, we're, We we definitely have some stuff going on, but not this. And then eventually getting to the point where people were so excited. And then what we realized, when we went, we tried to build this for nine months. I have this uh, rig down here with four GPUs for training deep learning models, right? That costs us like $15,000. And we <laughs> got this thing. We trained all this stuff for nine months. And then turns out, There's a combinatorics explosion that happens whenever you try to model this space, right? There's so many little factors that when you try to combine them into personas and tasks, it's just like it just blows up. So, the best we ever got was uh, uh, we would train on retention and conversion, and we could figure things out to a 42% accuracy. So, 42% of the time, we could predict whether or not a person is going to be. Converting or retaining and then we would just have the factors listed out. Who are they? What are the tasks? They're doing Okay, and then once we realized this emergence phenomenon like this idea of there's different people different tasks is so hard to cluster and it's so hard to figure out The right way to combine it that's you know we, uh, Nine painful months, but then after that we went back and we're like ah we should now ch- try to build the thing when we do the demos. That's like the silly, silly mistake was realizing feasibility risk, right? Because I've done a startup five, six years ago, and there we did some incredible technological stuff, but we couldn't sell it to anybody because we had no idea what the market was or what the need was, right? Whereas this time I was super, super cautious about that. I was like, okay, can't have a repeat of this. So we spent all this time finding the thing that is super exciting and who the people are who want it. But then merging the two worlds, it's like you need to make sure you can actually build it. So it's good to like now our rule is we don't show anything unless we've built it in a week or a month. And then also merging the value of it. Like you still want excitement, but you still, and then that's the arbitrage opportunity, right? It's like what exists that you can actually build that people love that will, you know, determine if you're successful or not.
2: And so one of my, I kind of dug into your background and looked at, you know, your blog and saw kind of what you were writing about. And I think you had a great, very in-depth article talking about this, like theory of making like pleasurable products. And you keep, you keep, it's funny because you keep saying excitement. How do I make this thing exciting? How do you measure exciting, right? Like Mm -hmm. we are always talking in like minimum viable product, but yeah. rarely when you're talking about an MVP, are you talking about integrating excitement? That's probably yeah. like one of the last things that any PM is going to talk about. It's like, well, what makes this really exciting? You know, it's it's like, well, what features do we have to get in to make it an MVP? Um, and I guess kind of where I'm going with this is your whole idea in that article talked about like survival interactions versus pleasurable interactions. And then how do you how do you identify that, right? Like, how do you get out? How do you extract the fun? How do you make it exciting? Yeah. Um, Yeah. And it's not, it's not always practical in the, like, and you know this from working on products in a big conglomerate, like getting that into the roadmap.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Right. Like, and so what, what would you say to somebody that's like on a team and they're like, I want to make my product exciting. I want to try to get this stuff built in, but how in the hell do I get past the feature, you know, the feature backlog and we're so focused on the nitty gritty, just getting things built. And it's not about that kind of high level pleasure metric. Yeah. Pleasure pleasure is a hard metric, I guess is kind of what I'm getting at here. Right. Like, absolutely. How do we measure that? How do we monitor it? Yeah. What's your take on that?
1: There's some interesting components to what you just said. I mean, it just made me think of so many things. Um, I think first of all, working at Microsoft. uh, So I was at Microsoft for three years and three months. And I remember my first year where basically I would try to pitch people, right? I would say um, my ego bias is I like epic things, right? It's kind of my internal driver I've noticed. And there's good parts to that and then there's bad parts to that, right? And it's about harnessing the bad parts and minimizing those and then getting the good out of it. And so a lot of times I would have these grandiose pitches I remember initially. You know, I was working on Outlook Desktop, which
2: has such a <laughs> large background. it's entrenched, man. Like it's it is what it is, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's incredible. There's like what half a billion people or something like that using it. And it's just something that has been around for so long, and the team has so much on their plate. Right, I remember initially trying to pitch stuff, trying to pitch stuff, and you know it kind of go on nowhere. And I'd be like, "Man, I am not good at this, right? I am not good at convincing people to do anything." Not realizing, like, first of all, the it's it's the Dunning-Kruger effect, right? It's it's where you think you know something about it, but you know so little that your metacognition prevents you from realizing how bad you are at it. So, yep. I, you know, and usually the best way to go into that is to just do it, right? That's kind of how I always approach it. I'm like, yeah, I probably don't know a bunch of stuff, but might as well try. And I remember I would literally just code a bunch of stuff. This is when uh, Dan and I overlapped for a year where we would just code stuff and then just be like, here's working code of the thing that I was trying to convince us to do. And then <laughs> that actually worked pretty well. Because when people just see it working, they're like, ah, you know, maybe, maybe we can just do that. So then
2: it's like you, you're like, okay, wait a minute. There's like an inkling, and I've seen this in my own work. It's like if you provide a concept design, mm-hmm. like if you're not, if it's not just words and and talking to somebody, but it's actually like a concept, something they can visually experience. It goes yeah. so far, right? Like, imagine if if instead of like Walt Disney saying, "Let's make a movie," and I want to make this movie, I want it's going to be called Cinderella, and here's the yep. script, and that's all you got. Do you think people would have been excited about that? Like, no, <laughs> hell no. Like, you gotta have concept art, right? You gotta have a concept, and I think the co- working code, working code or a prototype that's really close to it, concept design is just like so helpful for you to. Right, illustrate. right. But,
1: but on the other side, I would see people. For example, uh, I think I had like three managers while at Microsoft. I, I had a manager who was so good at selling where I would spend a week coding day and night, and he would just know how to say things in a way where people would just be like, yes, this. And I'd be like, wait a minute, what? And I would watch him do it. And I remember being like, damn it, this is like, that is way faster than me coding for weeks and weeks at a time to try to convince people. And I think, like mimicry is usually how you start. So I started trying to mimic what he does to understand. And to give you like context on like, or the actual pictures, I had zero people helping me. So I would be the engineer PM designer for my teams, not a good designer by the way. Um, And so I remember that, and then having my manager do the selling, And then all of a sudden, you know, yeah, I beat my head against the wall a bunch of times. You prototype stuff, you build your brand eventually. It reminded me of like I had the same journey at Amazon where like then once you get a couple of wins and kind of you build your own brand, your credibility quickly within the team, within the org, then people are more receptive, of course. But then I would see him go to any part of any company and then just be able to convince people in one meeting to do Basically work on anything and obviously you look at that and you think I I remember Thinking, oh wow, there's so much more to whatever is going on here that I don't understand and Realizing later like what he was really good at is understanding what people want right tapping into the outcome that they want and tapping into the personal desire that the person has and then you work backwards from that and then you start all of a sudden getting really good results in persuading people, right? And I definitely, afterwards he actually left and I was left on my own, which was awesome. Uh, and I was in a situation where um, my manager was a skip level traditionally. And so what was awesome about this, she, uh, she would give me a ton of autonomy. She's kind of like, you know, she's too busy. She has way bigger things to do than like, Deal with my feature work or whatever I was doing, which for for me was Nirvana because I was like, oh, awesome! So I can just go around and tr- kind of fail and experiment, and then sometimes I'd make a bunch of people mad, and then she would come in and I'm like <laughs> uh, resolve situations. So she, she was definitely always there for me, but the autonomy was so awesome because I was like, okay, I've been mimicking my manager for about eight nine months. And now I get to go try it on my own. It was awesome. I actually ended up going from having zero people, zero support for first year, just, I mean, it was a grind at Microsoft to working with a team of 50 people. I was working with uh, three designers. And uh, I mean, it's night and day. And then realizing, like learning that focusing on those outcomes.
2: And so tapping into the desires of the audience that you're like you said, he's a, he was a very adaptable, almost like a chameleon, like going into different conversations. Absolutely. And absolutely. Like being able to pinpoint very quickly. Do you have any tips for like how you, because you said mimicry is at the first, but then you really have to learn the process of identifying what is it this audience wants, right? What do they mm-hmm. want to hear? And what are they looking for? You are also building a reputation, so you can't be lying, right? And right. you cannot be like just telling, pandering and telling them what they want. So you have to truly Somehow get inside their brain and yeah. be talking their language. Like, what are your tips there? Like, what did you uncover?
1: Yeah, well, because I'm so, I would say, still very novice at it. So definitely, um, I think part of being a novice at something is not being able to characterize it very well yet. So I'm always trying to figure that out because if you can't understand yeah. what it is that makes it work, then it's very hard to figure out how to improve it faster. And that's like the, I would say the transition. I think the key thing is always just tapping into, I actually had a kind of a successful blog post, um, which was called, how to get promoted quickly in big tech or something like that so it made it to the spot 31 of hacker news one spot away from the first page so i can never say yeah. it made it to the front page which would be so much better but um uh, what was interesting in that article i was talking about if you tap into the motivation at a big company of like what are people there to do and this might be a very grim view, and um, is just my experience but basically what i realized is if you look at the earning report of the company you can figure out which parts of it are high growth areas and which parts are in maintenance mode like i look desktop if you look at it i mean it's already making uh however much money it's making billions right so there's only so much incremental value you can get out of it and what is satya uh, and amy hood thinking about right Well, they're thinking about how do we increase our revenue by $10 billion this year so our shareholders are super happy, right? And that's their job. That's their job. And realizing that at the end of the day, the people just like us, they have incredible experiences, of course, and very smart, but people just like us, and in our head, we can only fit three to six things at a time, right? And so when you think about like, what is Satya probably thinking about? He's thinking about, which of the six things he thinks are going to increase company's revenue by 10 billion dollars so that's where he has to focus in order to make stockholders happy and that's his job right and so realizing that if you just look at the earning report you can basically deduce okay here's the high growth parts of the company here are the maintenance mode parts of the company and the maintenance more mode part of the company like they call it culture but culture is just a way to keep people happy right so you keep people happy because if you realize that you're one of 10 people doing the same job because you need to be right like you, you can't have outlook for example have a person leave and it disrupt the whatever billions it's making you just can't have that so you hire 10 people and the amount of money it's making Paying 10 people, I don't know, 500K each is still nothing compared to how much money the product's generating. So then you get these parts of the organization that just have a ton of redundancy, as as they should, as they should. It's de-risking. You can't not de-risk it, right? And then you kind of have culture to make people feel better, right, about it. Um, and of course there's still like fun stuff happening and whatnot, but it's not going to like outlook. Desktop probably not going to make $10 billion well, increase. I-,
2: I like that. You kind of preface it with like, it's going to seem kind of dark, but to be honest <laughs> with you, like the, the reason they're worried about culture is that, that it's really a de-risking measure. Yep. Like they just want to retain redundancy. Right. And so if culture is good, if it's a good culture, then people aren't going to want to, you're not going to be losing people all the time. Right. And so the turnover rate is not as high and they're, for you don't have as much risk, right? You're just eliminating risk. So yeah, exactly. it ultimately saddles up to like you said, okay, it's kind of, it kind of reminds me of like thinking of the meta picture in a video game, right? Like, you know, we're, we're looking at the meta picture. What is Satya focused on or whoever at your company? It's like, well, look at the earnings sheet and you can tell <laughs> where they are investing a bunch of money and you probably want to be in that area. Yep, <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. Or if you're in a cash cow, you're probably okay. So again, if it's, it's like a maintenance mode product. Yeah, that, you if know, you're
1: trying to like, live life and work as secondary it's a great place to be right <laughs> but if if you're trying to grow your skills and you're trying to be on the grind to basically do a ton of exciting stuff then yeah you want to go where the ceo thinks the next 10 billion dollar increase is going to come from and realizing that this is like talent actually flocks so I remember think, feeling so naive not even understanding this when I had this realization, talent flocks to those areas as well, because a lot of people have already figured this out. So they'll flock to the regions of the company that are doing this stuff. And there, you'll see ramp. I have a couple of friends who went got to principal in like four years or something like that, right? And thinking about that, I'm like, whoa, that's like a level per year. Or, I mean, at a level, it's like a thing per year, whatever that's called, like <laughs> title. The, the title for Yeah.
2: <laughs> a ranking, whatever the hell it is. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: and so, looking at that and thinking, wow, uh, that's a very good place to be if you're trying to grow your skill set, plus make a bunch of money, right? So, I, I think that was very fascinating to me. I think. Also seeing there's these technical fellows at Microsoft. There's just a few, right? And interacting, I remember there was this cross team. I won't say what it is. I don't know if it's confidential or not. But there's this like six different teams across Microsoft trying to work together. And I just go to this weekly Wednesday meeting for an hour where everyone would just argue with each other because there's so much at stake and so many kind of career-making moments that are possible. And it it was, oh man, it was awful. And then I remember-
2: It was um, a pretty sweaty, sweaty lobby.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And then I remember um, one of the EVPs, because this is one of the projects that Satsi cares about clearly, sent in one of their technical fellows. I've never heard of him, never met him, nothing, right? And he just came in. I remember he just came to one meeting and then it was just you know all the classical stuff going on all the bickering and then the next meeting is just totally different meeting right the next wednesday i remember coming back and everyone was like yeah let's do this thing and everyone's agreed on everything and then there's this <laughs> one there was one quarter of the room that was clearly i think i think the methodology he used was he convinced one-on-one of the room to like buy into everything they want and have just to get things going and then he just figured like he doesn't need to spend the time on the last 25% because when 75% of the room is agreed on everything and is saying yes, yes, yes to everything like it's kind of like the rest of it will work itself out and I remember thinking like seeing my manager in the like my first you know year or two Like He was awesome, and then seeing this guy who clearly made a career out of just being incredibly good at managing people, right, in this way. And I think when I I went back and I looked at everything, like, why was everyone saying yes, yes, yes? Well, he everything they wanted, everything that they let it on, he just said yes to everything. It turns out you can just do that in that case, and then everything just went along the place yeah and then the project i think like started rolling instead of like this so again i think all he's doing is he's saying okay why is each one of these uh managers or directors why are they so invested in this thing right and then usually you can figure out like i mean we're all selfish right at the end of the day you have some like Again, three to six ideas just like side two that you think will get you promoted and you think will give you a ton of responsibility and enjoyment. So then he just went in, figured those out, figured out how to say yes to all of them. And then boom,
2: happy. In, in his absence, though, nothing was going to happen, which ultimately impacts the product pipeline, impacts everything right down line. Like if they oh, can't yeah. get along and, and get everything moving forward, then they're, blo- they're all blockers.
1: Yeah. I mean, there were actually major (laughs) ramifications organization-wise that happened because this group of people couldn't get things done. Again, like, I don't know what's considered confidential, but like it's even externally, you could see the differences the company made just to not have this sort of thing happen again. So I I thought that was really interesting because you see these reorgs and you wonder why they happen. But then when you see like why when things don't work, especially when microsoft needs to make this happen right like with the phone for example mobile phone right
2: i I was gonna this is i love that you're talking about this so like i think it's really fascinating i did not know that microsoft was going to shut down like all the physical stores Mm -hmm. right and so we see this like decrease in the focus on consumer hardware almost what's your take on this like what are your thoughts? Like they closed it early because they were planning on doing it anyways, right? Mm -hmm. Her reports, it was going to happen in 2021, regardless, they were going to start scaling back supposedly. Now, I don't know. Like it seems like they're going to be pushing more into hardware. It'd be advantageous to have storefronts. Maybe, I don't know. What do you think in the world we live in now? Is it, is it nice to go in and like touch the latest Apple product? Yeah. Definitely like I want to see what size that phone is and I certainly want to see what size of this You know fold-up device is gonna be like right if I'm gonna use carry it in my pocket. I want to have it in my hand first, but What are your thoughts on that? Like again talking about scaling back a division or, or moving you know, kind of refocusing mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so
1: <laughs> Enter wild speculation um, I think again, if we look at the earnings sheet, um, how much does consumer make Microsoft? Right? I think
2: if you move, if you take Xbox out of that picture, I mean,
1: even with Xbox.
2: Yeah.
1: Right. It's just like, what where's Microsoft making a ton of their money? Well, it's the like three year enterprise subscriptions. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's, I think, what you'll see with products, uh, like obviously Microsoft has a bunch of products, there's like three layers. There's the point solution companies that just do one thing really simply. Then there's the medium business size things that try to do an all-in-one. And then there's the enterprise level products that has to be so customizable that you can literally do anything with them, right? I think I uh, read that from Brian Balfour on the internet. Um, and I was, you think about those three things, well the expertise necessary to make one happen versus the other is so different, right? I think for a while it seemed like Microsoft was trying to move into consumer, move downstream, but then you realize that, okay, enterprise is what Microsoft is excellent at. And then you try to minimize the costs of unsuccessful experiments, right? And so to me, it just seems like Microsoft's doubling down of like, okay, In consumer, I don't know if we're the best. We have some incredible stuff, but where's most, you know, you look at the earning report, where's most of the value coming from? I think they're just figuring out how do we focus, not saying it's like giving up on consumer, but it's like, how do we focus all the resources where we're making the most money in those?
2: Which is not keeping storefronts open. It's actually focusing on the hardware, focusing on right building these 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 experiments right and doing it really well so like hololens yeah. right that's another one that's like there's been a lot of like talk around that and there's like other competing products like where is this going to go as it mm-hmm. evolves it's it's very much experimental they're not making anything probably off of that right now yeah, right
1: yeah but it, it it's yeah it's very interesting and of course there's so many people involved in so many decisions so it's tough to say but i think At the end of the day, earning report is
2: where.
0: Yeah. So to that, though, so when you look at the earning report, you see very high level. What's your litmus test to see what are those kind of innovative pockets within a broader org? Like, how do you use to assess, like, is this the team that truly pushes the boundary versus somebody that is within a larger org, but still tries to maintain like a status quo and say, just, you know, reap the benefits without the investment?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a nice little trick that is using Sales Navigator on LinkedIn to see which part of the company is getting promoted quickly. That's, that's actually one way to do it, is you can just straight up see in there by looking at the progression of growth of uh, uh, titles. The other ways, I think a lot of times it's like, if we look at Google, right, which none of us are involved with in, you look at Google, um, uh, like what? I think, I think I might be wrong, but it's a good example. I think Google potentially is thinking, okay, Stadia, the subscription-based hardware-less gaming platform might be a thing that can make $10 billion if we can make it work, right? So I think right now that's one of their experiments. So if you go to Stadia and you work at Google, you're probably going to get a lot of opportunities because you're going to be the only one person working on your area, because you, you don't need 10 people to work on the same role when it's a new thing. There's not a lot of risk to maintain. So then you get a lot of responsibility, and you get to grow the product a ton, right? So I think, like, the test is to see which technologies have the potential. And a lot of times in earning reports, they'll get split out, right? That's kind of later stage, they get split out as their own bucket. I think, again, that's to get kind of investor excitement or stockholder excitement investor, is it the same thing? Um, And to get that excitement, so you can look and see which which areas are they kind of like, usually there's this points of what they're raving about, what they're talking about growing, what they're splitting out. And those are usually the areas, right? Like you could have identified Azure this way. If you go back and look at the earnings report, you could identify like the shift in the company and Azure was definitely, I mean, still is a place where a lot of the growth is happening.
0: Interesting. So to that extent, kind of looking a little bit back, uh, you made a transition from, you know, you, you mentioned that you worked at Amazon at Microsoft, and now you're running your startup. Um, how did you make that leap? Because I feel like for a lot of people, it's it's a, it's like jumping over a canyon. It's a pretty terrifying, you know, when you have the comfort of your 401k, and, you know, all the benefits that you get from yeah. this company, and then you're running nice. your own startup. Yeah, like, how did you make how did you arrive to that decision? Like, what, what were drivers?
1: Yeah, uh, here, I think, project a little bit of Naval. Uh, So, I think what's awesome about Naval uh, is he standardized a language around how to think about life and happiness. And I think is a lot of people had these ideas, it just wasn't a common language for it. So I think that's the innovation he brought is he standardized language. For me personally, it was kind of very simple. The second I feel like I'm not uh, growing at the maximal rate that I can be, like I have to leave. So to give you an example at Microsoft, I mean, it was so incredible. My, I just, I think I just got really lucky. Actually, my first three months was, uh, I didn't have the best management team and then I think those site level changes propagated down and boom, I had a brand new everything like manager, skip level, manager, VP, like everything changed. I was actually going to quit and I ended up not quitting and ended up learning a ton and growing a ton. I think I was probably like, I mean the amount of stuff I learned was just amazing. Right. But at some point, this is the problem with uh, specialized roles and companies you can read about in the hard thing about hard things in Ben Horowitz book. He actually talks about this phenomenon. You can't give people more and more responsibility at a large company very quickly, because even if it's justified, you end up, it's like, there's a lot of play, right? And at the end of the day, the culture aspect of it is going to be more important than getting this person to stay, right? So, I think what I felt like is my growth was basically like just rocketing for a while. And then at some point I started trailing off. And that's just because the amount of responsibility I needed didn't match my level anymore. And like the, the, again, the the whole organization is so accommodating. It's amazing. And even here they, they, understood that and try to make that happen for me. But at that point, I just saw like, it's a struggle for them to give me kind of what I need to grow. And then for me, like to give you an example, I I actually quit four months before the bonus came, which would have been pretty large, very substantial. But I was like, I don't wanna stay for four more months unless I'm growing at a phenomenal rate for these four months. And to me, I think of it as compounding effects over your lifetime is I think you can get stuck in a loop, right? If you get stuck in a loop in your life, I, I want when I'm 60 years old, ideally I want to have 60 years of extreme growth, right? And if I allow myself to get stuck in a loop for 10 or 20 of those years, right I'm gonna equi- I'm basically gonna have the skill set of you know I'm 60 and someone 40 could have the same skill set. And that's that's You're the basically way I like
2: atrophying it. in your career.
1: Well, that's why you get paid. Like, at Facebook, right, you get, you know, I, I see friends with incredible backgrounds get, like, three, 500K offers, right? And what are they getting paid to do? Well, they're getting paid to not grow as quickly. That's why, that's the arbitrage, right? They could work on something with an uh, explosive potential or they're kind of getting paid. And it's not, it's not like you're not growing, right? They're I'm sure they're growing maybe at 70% rate. Whereas in their own thing, they could be growing at a 100% rate because there's no limitations. But I mean, if you can get a really good salary and grow at a 70% rate, I think that's that's wonderful. But at some point, it'll trend down, especially if you advance very quickly through your levels and your responsibility. It'll trend down where something like 30 20% of your time will be growing yourself. And the rest will be about uh, subjectivity. It's about like when things are not directly connected to revenue, right? It's very hard to tell who did what. So I actually really love this about Amazon. At Amazon, because everything's so revenue-focused, you can you can show if you're a 1x, 10x, or 100x employee, right? And so Palantir is the company that's known for this, right? Palantir is a cyber... Uh, well, they're kind of like a data company, basically. And they bring in their tool, they throw it on the data set, of the company, and then what will happen is there'll be 100 analysts working. They bring their tool in, and all of a sudden you'll see a curve, 1x, 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 100x, 100x, 1000x, 1000x. And a lot of times, and I know this is a little inhumane, well, actually if you got four people doing 2000x and 100x, you you actually don't need 100 analysts anymore, you just need those four people. So. That's what Palantir does is they'll bring that tool in and then you realize, oh man, these guys have been kind of coasting for a while. And then these folks over here are crushing it, right? And it just exposes that picture. And I think that effect to make that happen at large corporations would require um, some sort of technical innovation. But I also don't know how good that would be, right? I mean, it's- again. If- if we it's go like back the uh, to what we talked about earlier. Like, do you want to show people? You know that
2: it's like Office Space. They come in and they're like, "Hey, what do you? What exactly are you doing here?" Yeah. <laughs> yeah. By the way, we want to give you a raise.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay.
2: but we're going to fire everybody else. It,
0: it is a very good point, though, because like you're, I think you're right. There's a lot of, and I think to to your point that you made earlier of like that risk mitigation and this kind of buffering, essentially. Um, that results in a lot of kind of lost almost opportunity for growth because everyone has these like little pockets of things they're responsible for versus somebody that says, go and do big things. Like right. go build something big versus like, like oh
1: you, you can't blame them right like I mean what are you supposed to do like if 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 I had a product that makes ten billion dollars yeah I would hire ten people for every little part of it that I could of course right that's right that's crazy yeah. I mean that's your responsibility to the stockholder like you're
2: increasing your odds that you're going to win like, yeah, exactly. by doing that because they're going to stumble upon ideas they're going to be able to continue to work and work the product in those different little verticals.
1: Yeah, right. But in terms of self growth, that's where I think, unfortunately, things don't work out as well. And I wonder, like, I I think I have some rant on LinkedIn somewhere where I talk about what would it take to not have to have companies do this. And it's, I mean, it's, it's hundreds of years away. Uh, so I think for me personally, the decision was simple, basically, when I felt like the balance was below 70% of growth, right? And, Actually, interesting enough, someone in my management chain shared their experience saying how they actually had to leave for a year and then came back like three levels higher as a manager getting paid 100K more, right? And I was like, huh, that's that's counterintuitive. You would think like, you know, I think uh, naively I thought, oh, man, aren't people going to be upset that I left and all this? But realistically, it's like, no, that's, that's how you show it. You're confident. You're like, okay. Well, if I can't grow here, I'm going to go somewhere else where I can't get the opportunity. And then at the end there, like it's totally fine to hire someone in at a high level. It's just not fine to promote someone very quickly, right? So that that's that's the like, dichotomy here, which is super fascinating, is by moving around, you're actually proving your market value. And then it's not a big deal to be able to put you in a role, even if those people still know you. So I think all of that is super counterintuitive. And for me, ultimately, yeah, it was very simple. I felt like I could learn and grow a lot more. But I've also been passionate about this thing for like 11 years that we're doing, right? So like some version of it. So it was just a very easy decision to say, okay, worst case scenario, I'm sure I can, you know, I have job liquidity. I can go work anywhere if necessary. And like, we're so fortunate as tech people to have this opportunity. Right. And at the same time, I want to learn and grow a ton. So this seems like the right point of my life to do this. Like, I don't, you know, I don't have children.
2: I was about to ask that, like, you know, you made a choice here to basically le- leave everything you just told us was so rich and like you kind of have a very mature view of like that being in that growth mindset for your career oh, thank you. In the corporate ladder, like, you, you kind of can figure it out. Like I can hop around, I can figure out how to optimize my growth in my career, but you mm-hmm. actually chose to do your own thing. <laughs> like I'm gonna leave yeah. that behind because I see a, a bigger growth opportunity here while I have low risk, I don't have a lot of attachments, right? Like nothing, mm-hmm. like I love that you said that, there's a window of opportunity, like now is the time.
1: To yeah, if in. there's like a lover, like I, I, wanna, I wanna be at 100% as much as I can right like i always want to be pulling it actually when i um accepted the microsoft offer i was working with Andreas and horowitz they have this little thing called uh talent talent uh, bank or something like that and basically it's a little shopping cart interface and you go in if you have to interview for like seven hours to get into this thing And then you go in and they give you a little shopping cart of companies that are in their portfolio, which is about 500 companies. And you can kind of like go through this fun e-commerce experience to select some startups and then they'll make very warm intros and share the results. So that was very cool. And I remember the person there saying, do not go to Microsoft. And I was like, man, this guy, like Microsoft is a company I've idolized since I was like six. growing up in, you know, Russia. And so uh, I was thinking about that. I was like, oh, I can't believe he's speaking so poorly of Microsoft. And then I realized what he was talking about is this exact phenomena. I think he was a little dramatic about the way he chose to express it. I think he called it a rat race. I think I've written that in one of my, he's like, you're gonna just be going for the next Chrome. And I was like, huh? <laughs> like, I, you know, fresh out of college, I have no idea what he's talking about. But I don't think it's quite that bad. Like, like you said, Courtney, like there's ways you can tweak the lever by moving around the company. I mean, Microsoft is like a big country. There's, like yep. different, different like, cities, different, and,
2: and ports, different, di- different I think it's really important that people keep it in context where different people optimize for different things. I mean, I've met people that have been in the same role for 10 years at Microsoft and they're extremely happy, right? Like Yeah, Radical Camera balance,
1: like, is the book that talks about this so well.
2: Yeah. Like, you know, if you have five kids and you like your work-life balance and you have a great, you know, you're working on a product you really love and are passionate about, then go for it. Yeah, um, but exactly. at the same time, you're not optimizing for the same thing as a guy that's like, I want to be high growth in my career. I want to get the highest title I can. Um, different levels of enjoyment. So for our listeners, you know, optimize. what are you going to optimize for? I think you need to have that meta picture in your mind. What am I yeah. optimizing for right now in my life and in my career? You know, you're, you're optimizing for something very different than even I am. I mean, I want to grow, but I'm like more at like 75% tilt, right? Like <laughs> I'm not at 100% <laughs> tilt. I'm not going to quit everything. I can't, <laughs> I got to feed kids, but yeah. <laughs> well, That's Hey, um, I actually have to drop off here, uh, but I did want to say like, thanks so much for coming on the show. Um, I love this conversation. I love the angle that you're kind of thinking about both product market fit. I think the product sounds super exciting. I will be reaching out to you more to talk about that, but then just even the career advice for our listeners um, is for wonderful. Sure. Yeah.
1: Thanks so much for having me. then.
0: I feel like your insights are just so, like I was telling Courtney that like Philippe knows more about product than probably anybody I know in my life. So uh, we really appreciate you. you like sharing your insights and your perspective because it's, it's very refreshing. It's kind of the stuff that is, you don't really find in a lot of like the the blog posts and the stuff that people talk about. You have the very raw perspective that is super, super helpful. So we appreciate you coming over. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, folks. Till next time. Yeah.